what you'll get is neither the bold weirdness of Egger's previous efforts in the critically acclaimed margins, nor a clean strike into the blockbuster mainstream. That's well said by Colleen Morrissey of Chicago Reader. Our feature review is The Northman, currently in theaters from, as they said in the previews, visionary director Robert Eggers. How about this cast? Alexander Skarsgård, Nicole Kidman, Ethan Hawke, Willem Dafoe, and many others. That is our new movie. Our old movie, since I'm a Spike Lee completist, he's one of my favorite filmmakers. I've never seen this film. I said, I'm going to finally watch School Days. That's right. His second film he made before Do the Right Thing and after She's Gonna Have It. I finally saw it. Let's just say it wasn't worth the wait. That's our old movie, but more importantly, our wild card. Let's go. Talking about, as Chris said, we had him on the line. We reeled him in. Yes. Judd Apatow. That's right. Judd Apatow, one of the great comic minds. Cody, 222 interviews of Cinephile, 222 episodes, I should say, of Cinephile. This is the longest we've ever gone, 35 minutes. I thought he brought the heat. We're not messing with you either, because it's. I feel like it'd be something we would do. We have some guy named Rudd Apatow on, and we just say it's Judd, and then like we like mess with the audience. This is the real Judd Apatow. We had like 30 minutes with him. We both got to ask questions. It was so much fun. Adnan was in a car because like this was a whole thing getting him to join and we could only do it at a certain time Adnan was driving back from Boston so you pulled over on the side of the road yeah. it is just anything to get Judd Apatow yeah let's listen to the interview and then me and Chris will tell the stories of what happened behind the scenes because that's not as good as the interview but it's still kind of amusing so here he is the man himself enjoy Judd Apatow hey John I'm Adnan how are you I'm great uh, thanks so much for doing this man we're huge fans so I can't thank you enough I love it. You're in a special studio today. Yeah. <laughs> I called the Angels-Red Sox game at Fenway last night for MLB Network. I'm driving back from Boston. I live in Bergen County, so I apologize for the lack of unprepared. <laughs> you would like to go to your car. We can sync it up. I'll go. Uh, well, you know what? The sound sounds perfect, so I, 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 I get it. A real pleasure to bring you one of the great comic minds ever. He is the writer and director of the 40-year-old Virgin Knocked Up Trainwreck. He's produced Freaks and Geeks, The Big Sick. He is a writer on my favorite show of all time, The Larry Sanders Show and made one of the greatest documentaries of all time, in my opinion, The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling. And now Judd Apatow is back again. George Carlin's American Dream debuts on HBO May 20th, a two-part event. So I met you a few years ago at the Oscars, a fleeting moment, 2017, the red carpet. I'm like, I got to say hi to Judd Apatow. So I just went up to him, like, hey, man, love the Larry Sanders show, love your work. You're like, thanks. Like, where are you from? I'm like, I'm actually from ESPN. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Did you like my 30 for 30? And I did. That was Doc and Daryl. That's is right. Fan. And I mentioned it because I've got sicker in the head. And there's a glorious picture of you throwing in a first pitch with Jacob DeGrom in the background. Tell me <laughs> yes, about that pitch. Well, I, I can't say it was a highlight of my uh, athletic career. I can't say it went well. I basically hadn't thrown a ball in about 20 years. You know, I have two daughters, so that wasn't something that I picked back up during their childhoods. So then I, I practiced a little bit. And when you haven't thrown a hard ball in a long time, you literally start thinking about your mechanics. Like, do I, do I throw over my shoulder or to the side? Like there's so many ways to like have it really go wrong. And then your arm starts going out from practicing really fast. Cause you've used right. none of these muscles. And so I practiced uh, the day of underneath city field. See, I felt solid. Everyone was like, you're high on the mounds. So you have to throw high or it'll go in the dirt. And so they called my name and then I remember that I thought the audience would applaud because there was 52,000 people there, Mets, Yankees, and it was a damn smattering. It was a smattering. It was not a lot. And I was kind of depressed as I walked to the mound. I got depressed, like, like they just announced like the, 
you know, the Manhattan borough president or something like <laughs> people did not care that, that it was me. They didn't think, oh, it's Long Island's Judd. They're like, we don't give a crap. And then Jacob deGrom is out there. And I didn't know what I was supposed to do with him because he's like waiting behind the mound, like get it over with, you know, like I got a game to throw here. And then I ran out into the field and shook his hand. I don't think I was supposed to. Like, he's like, you know, he's in center field. <laughs> and I went all the way out there, shook his head. And then in a panic, I just threw the ball. It went straight, but hit the dirt. And then uh, the crowd booed me uh, partially. And I looked like Jerry Lewis in all the photographs. Wait, a, a better first pitch than uh, 50 Cent and many others. I think I've done that. Uh, let's dive into Carlin. Um, so I was... 14 years old when I first listened to Jammin' in New York. I had the cassette tape. Me and my brother loved it. I loved the fact he included it in the dock. The planet is fine. I went back and looked at some of his other routines. The airplane stuff is amazing. I remembered if I could put my seat back forward, I'd be in porno movies. Every single time I go on an airplane, I think of that bit. Um, I thought it was amazing, the doc, Judd, that George said that uh, concept was really important to me. He said that was when I truly felt like an artist, a true writer. How rare is that? Guy in his mid-50s thought he really kind of cracked the code on the 30th anniversary of Jammin' in New York. I always think about it in terms of musicians, you know, how many bands or musicians put out their best work at 50? Yeah. You know, yeah. usually it's early and then you peter out. Right. And for someone to say, you know what, I'm going to redouble my efforts and get way better. I mean, I remember Sidney Lumet put out that movie till the devil knows you're dead. And he was 81 and yep. it was so good and yeah. so dark. It's like Scorsese making Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. And those are the people I admire who, who always want to get better, always want to go deeper. And he decided after seeing Sam Kinison that he didn't want to be the corny comedian who's not as good as everyone. He was like, I want to be the great comic. I want everyone to look up to me. I don't want to be from the past. And then right. he he got better. And there's never been another comic who's been so brilliant at mining language. I went and watched the, the bit about euphemisms. I love the bit you include in the doc about the difference between change and alter. You can change your plans. You can alter your plans. But if you alter your pants and change your pants, it's a big difference. <laughs> <laughs> Has there ever been another comic who is so fast and so great at just looking at all the nuance of language? I don't think anyone has ever been that interested. I mean, there are people who have bits like Jerry Seinfeld, where they break down language and some very famous bits, but he would go on these 10 minute runs of, of like Orwellian language. And he was the first person to go like military intelligence, you know, like <laughs> jumbo shrimp. And some of them are like music. And they go on and on and on. But he was very interested in the way words are used to manipulate people. The way the military tries to make you know, murdering people not seem so bad just based on the words they use. Collateral damage. <laughs> and I think that it's important that we have those voices who, who talk about the power of language and and the ways that we are numbed to things. Yeah, the way he describes used to be shell shock shell shock and now it's become post-traumatic stress disorder like just yeah. you're adding more words to the thing even though you know what it is i love the in fact you include some stuff with richard pryor because for me i think mount rushmore stand-up comics it's got to be pryor and carlin after that you can disseminate who you like as the other two but great clip you include of him and pryor talking about the way audience laugh and later on carlin made a joke but you know pryor freebasing himself what was his relationship like with richie pryor it's funny because they were both on this john davidson summer show in the mid-60s and, you know, it's a very light variety show. 
they're all wearing like the same sweater or something. And they're doing these really like corny routines. It's before both of them found themselves and got edgy and spoke their, their truth, but they're both into it, which is funny. Like it doesn't look like they think they think like, Oh, this is lame to be here. They want to be famous. They're going for it. And and there's a clip that's not in the documentary where Richard Pryor sang a, really intense song i don't even know where it's from i don't know if it's a nina simone song i've never seen richard Pryor sing before it's really powerful and i think that that's what show business was then it was all these variety shows that's how comedians established themselves and then in in the late 60s both of them were like i don't want to be this guy i i want to get to my my truth and I love just how nihilistic George became towards the end. Like, you've got Colbert going, yeah, he kind of lost towards the end, but he's a little bit dark, but he's talking about, you know, he's really cheering for the species to end. He's like, I don't care about death. I don't care about social reform. But you give me a hospital bird, and a guy hobbling in crutches. I'm a happy guy. I'm a happy yeah, guy. Yeah, I mean, that was, you know, w- one of the things he did late in his career was he said, I'm not a part of it anymore. I'm just witnessing the collapse of humanity. And I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to watch it like a spectator, like someone who goes to a car race hoping for a crash. And people debated, like, was that just darkness or was it a way for him to say to the audience, wake up and fix things? And I always thought that that was the point. It was a, it was a comedic stance to go so dark that it pushed you to the light. Like, I don't want to be this guy. It wasn't like you should think like me. It was wake up. You know, we're destroying the world. We're not treating each other well. And by acting like he's enjoying it, he's pointing out the ridiculousness of not doing better. And there's that great point he makes. That sometimes if you scratch a cynic, you see a frustrated idealist behind it. So maybe that's who what George Carlin was. Uh, it remains to be seen. May 20th, American Dream, two-part series. Cannot wait for everyone to watch on HBO. I mentioned the Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling. Judd, I think that is what Fellini's eight and a half is to world cinema. That documentary is to comedy that is one of the great expressions ever of artistic expression and comedic genius and all the difficulty and nuance of it it's a remarkable tour de force by you and at the time i said i got john apatow's made a lot of great things but i don't think he'll ever top the zen diaries of gary shandling not only as a personal statement towards his mentor and his friend but just such a brilliant piece of work did you have any apprehension including any of that stuff in those journals because it was so personal so vivid and yet so profound I think that I was just so depressed about Gary passing that it was a way for me to get closer to him. And also maybe it was a piece of unfinished business for him because I think he hadn't figured out how to express a lot of the ideas in the documentary, in his standup or in his writing, but he was beginning to dance around how he might talk about his spirituality and what he learned in his life. So I think I felt like, he had given me all of these raw materials to assemble for people to uh, experience and hopefully to have it affect their lives. And I kept thinking to myself, Gary would want me to be this honest and open because I think in death, he would think, use my life for what you will. Take my life and if you can get something out of it, if you can use it as an example for better to make your life better or to not do what I did, I want to share it with people. That that was the instinct that I had. 
There's a line in there that Sarah Silverman says, I think of it all the time. I think Gary told it, or it's a staple of Buddhism, which is that if you think about the past too much, that's depression. If you think about the future, that's anxiety. So all I have to do is live in the present. I think about that all the time. And I think it's so um, enriching and life-affirming what you did. And I love the fact you put the book as well, because there's lots more journal entries and lots of great one-liners. I look at this one-liner all the time. It's so hot all the time. And Gary Gorbatusa in Arizona said it was so hot today, my dog ran by and burst into flames. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he had a lot of Arizona jokes, a lot of jokes about being like the only Jewish family in Tucson. And, you know, early in his career, he was just an incredible joke writer. Uh, and then after he died, I would look on, you know, his, his corkboard and there would be all these jokes on his corkboard. And on his corkboard, there was this one joke where he said, somebody said to me, where were you on 9-11? And I said, which 9-11? I've had 28 bad 9-11s. <laughs> I don't know if he ever said it on stage, but I, it was just wild that I was just sitting on this corkboard yeah. when you know we went to his house after after he died. No, it's just such a great line. And it was such a great, and I just loved all your stories with Larry Sanders show. It's the only show I can think of where the last episode was absolutely perfect. Like, there's so many season finales that are criticized, series finales, I should say. And yet that was like perfection. The Jim Carrey stuff is amazing. Um, you know, I, I always laugh at Clint Black when he's singing to Larry because that's supposed to ape Bette Midler singing to Johnny Carson. Yes. And Bruno Kirby says, a man singing to another man. How fucking sick is that? <laughs> <laughs> well, Gary was obsessed on making the last episode like the best last episode ever. I mean, and he would, he, he really had a high bar. And I remember he was like, do you think there's any way Jim Carrey will do it? And we had been asking Jim Carrey for six years to come on. And so I called Jim Carrey and I said, Jim, will you do the show? And he said, I'll only do it if I will be the best person who had ever done it. I have to be better than everyone who's ever had a moment on the show. And I'm like, okay, Jim, yes, you'll be the best person <laughs> who's ever done it. But that's how people like that think. You know, he's like, I'm, I will do your show, but we have to do something historic. It has to be incredible. And uh, I remember there was this moment where Jim and I, uh, you know, were young comedians and we were talking to these two women at the improv. And then ne next thing you know, it's like three in the morning and we're like in these strangers apartment and they're making us French toast. Like nothing happened. We were just like talking to them and they're just, they decided to make like pancakes and French toast. And then this one woman takes out the dream girl soundtrack and she lip syncs that song. So I'm telling you, like, I'm not leaving. Right. And me and Jim just looked at each other like, we are in a David Lynch movie right now. <laughs> like, what on earth is happening? And I never forgot it. And I said to Jim, maybe you should sing that song from Dreamgirls. Because <laughs> I always think in creativity, those things happen for a reason. Like, yeah. it's not happenstance. Like, we saw this strange woman lip sync that song to Jim so that we would one day use it somewhere else. <laughs> oh my God, that's great. Two more quick ones on Larry Sanders. I want to get to the book, Sicker in the Head, More Conversations About Life and Comedy. It's a great new book here by Judd. I think my favorite personal episode, though, Judd, is The Roast. I've watched that episode so many times. I was surprised. I read uh, Jim, James Andrew Miller's book, Tinderbox, a uh, great book on HBO, and he said The Roast particularly was a tough episode to do. But I, I don't think I've ever laughed so hard. I mean, Bill Maher, Kip Adada, and they're all making jokes about Larry being gay. The single best one was Al Franken. So I need to know, was this written or was this Al? Because he goes up there and says, I just did the White House Correspondents' Dinner. It was great. And he goes, you know, I know the president a little bit. So he came up to the afterwards. He goes, hey, uh, what do you think about next year? And I'm like, oh, maybe Larry. And he goes, hmm. I guess I, I don't really, actually, I remember exactly what he said. He said, Larry Sanders doing his act for half an hour. I'd rather have Al Gore fuck me in the ass. 
I mean, that, oh ep- that episode, like, it's so funny. Can you tell me anything about the roast? Because apparently in reading the book, it was a tough episode to do. Well, I think that the issue was that it was the last episode of the season. Gary right. was completely out of gas. And right. what people don't understand is Gary was the writer, producer, you know, he's overseeing the directors and the editing and he's the star. So he has to like star in the show. Yeah. And then be giving notes and punching up next week's episode and giving notes on the edits of other episodes. Like it's too much work for one person. And at that time in TV history, no one had figured out how to solve that problem from a production standpoint. So you didn't bury your star who was the creator. So by the time we did Girls, I knew how to set up the show so Lena could do her writing and her acting and it wouldn't break her. But with Gary, it didn't work. We would shoot 17 pages a day every Thursday and Friday. Yeah. And so we would re- we'd table read Monday, rehearse Tuesday, Wednesday, and then shoot 17 pages a day. And not like a sitcom, like a movie. Now, most movies shoot four pages a day. So that's how hard he was working. So at that point, he was getting really mad at the production. And he, he thought, no one is taking care of me. I'm telling you I'm out of gas. I'm telling you I'm cracking. And so I believe that like midway through that show, he just got on a plane and went to Fiji or somewhere and just left and left the show to figure out how to cobble together an episode with what we had and to finish up like the last day without him. And they did. And and so it's an episode that you love, but it was something that came out of Gary just going, I'm out of gas. I'm done. This it's season's coming. over. And, and I love the fact that the doc, you include the other stuff. Like everyone's like, oh, what else is Gary doing? I'm like, well, what else? Like he's just made two of the greatest shows of all time. Like, yeah, a little over the hedge here. He popped up with Seinfeld, tweeted in cars. Like, what else do you want him to do? Like, he's just enjoying his life. He plays basketball at the company. We have a good life. Like, that's it. What, what more do you want from Gary? He's done it all. I think you can say that about all creative people. Right. That how much do we expect from them? You know, there are some people like George Carlin, he would put out a special like every other year, every couple of years. And then there are certain comedians, maybe, you know, like Seinfeld, I think he might have three specials his entire career. And he has a different approach, which is he probably has like four or five hours of material. And, you know, he switches it up for himself and he doesn't want to burn through all of it. And, uh, and there are other people, you know, Tom Segura, you know, (laughs) who's so incredible. And he, he likes to put out a lot of specials and they're remarkable. And I think different people have a different approach to what their output can be. And as an audience, I think sometimes, you know, we demand more. But, you know, how many Sergeant Peppers do you need to make? Yep. And I think Gary gave it all he had. And then he had some health problems and never felt like he had the energy to take another big run at it. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Once again, Zen Dyer's Gary Shanley. It's an all timer. Once again, George Carlin's American Dream on HBO, HBO Max. I'm interested in the writing process. When you have a, a movie, like when you're writing a movie, are you waiting for an idea to come to you? Or do you like, say, it's time to make a movie. Let me sit down at my desk and I'm going to sit down from nine to five today and write a movie. Or, or is it all just once an idea comes, then I go make a movie. Usually there's a couple of things floating. Like I'm thinking about making, this is 50. And so I'll make notes over a couple of years. You know, what could it be about? What could its themes be? And then there's usually a moment where I'll think, okay, I'm ready. Now I'm going to sit down and write it. Like, this is real. This isn't just a thought in a notebook.
Sicker in the Head is the book. More conversations about life and comedy from Judd Apatow. Judd, I love the book, particularly the interview with Rami Youssef. This story says, I want to do this story about a Muslim family. And they asked me, well, what if they live next door to a white family? Or what if it's one kid he's kind of like displaced? It was all really like, how do we make this something that a non-Muslim would be interested in? Now they need to be as Muslim as possible. Like, let's show the whole thing in Arabic. And if you're Egyptian, let's have the whole thing with hieroglyphic subtitles. People are so willing to go down that path now. How do you manage that, the, the desire to have more diversity now in the rooms, on television, but also there's some financial issues as well. We're trying to make some money off of this. How do you navigate that balance? It's interesting because I grew up as a white Jewish guy on Long Island, and that's what all the comedians felt like. They felt like Paul Reiser and and and, and Seinfeld. And I, I never thought about diversity that much. I, I just, you know, I just took for granted that all these people were like me. And only much later did I realize how there are so many communities that have been denied the opportunity to tell their stories in all different forms of, of art. And what he's talking about is the problem, which is, well, will Caucasian people watch Rami's family if we don't jam some Caucasian people into his world? And when we did The Big Sick, you know, we had trouble getting people to give us the money to make that movie. And we knew the script was great. We knew the story was great. And we knew that everybody would like it. And it, even though it was about a family of immigrants and people from Pakistan, and Muslims, that it would be a big success. But we had to prove it. And we, we did it with a budget that was like 20% of what we normally get. And that was based on a form of systemic racism. The idea that we don't believe it'll be a hit. And then it was a hit. And I feel like with all these systems, you have to prove to them that their theories are wrong. And I think that Rami's one of our greatest comedic minds. His work couldn't be better. I love Rami. And he has made a show that I think is so human and beautiful and funny and, and groundbreaking in so many different ways. And that changes the culture. And I'm so glad that people are getting opportunities, but they need way more because that system is still there on both sides. Like, can we jam every type of person into every show? And that's not realistic either. You know, we want to show the world as it is and give every part of our country a voice. You know, we, we want to, to not create a false reality, right? So if Rami's world is, there wasn't a white couple next door, well, don't jam it in to get the white couple to watch. Let him be true to his experience. We got the Jewish couple, we got a black couple, we got a Muslim couple, we're hitting all these demographics, we're good to go. I love the story that Hassan Minaj tells too. I do not have an assistant. But he tells the story of being in his office and his dad, his mom are there. And he asked his white assistant, dad, you want a drink? You want a coffee? Sure. Mom, tea. And the mom says to him, I can't believe a white person is getting you this stuff. Like that's the echoes of partition in India 60 years ago. So like to your point, this stuff still exists today. Even people who are brown like me go, wow, I can't believe how much the world has changed right now, which is a good thing, but it takes time. Yeah, it does take time. And I think that's what we're arguing about in the country right now which is, are we allowed to tell young people in school how unfair it's been? Right. Are we allowed to explain the history of this? Because if everyone understood, it would open people's hearts. It would make people understand people who are different than them. So the fact that there's people fighting the idea of what are the, what, what is the true history 
in this country is so destructive. But And someone said it really well. They said, teaching kids about the horrors of our behavior in the past, it's it, sh- it won't make them feel guilty. It'll make them feel good about them not doing it. They're not guilty. They didn't do anything. You know, they they should feel great that they are allowed to know about it. I, as a young person, if I heard about, you know, indigenous people, you know, being slaughtered when this country was created, I didn't feel guilty. Mm-hmm. I felt like, well, that was wrong. Let's treat people better. That's true. It's all about just kind of education and awareness. There's also in the book, and I did not know about this, Eddie Vedder and I singing a song we wrote about Gary Shamling at Bonnaroo <laughs> Music and Arts Festival. Please sing me a lyric or two about that. I did not know Eddie Vedder is a Shandling guy too. I was doing the Bonnaroo Festival and there was a comedy tent. And I said to Eddie Vedder, will you come to the tent and do something with me? And I thought he would just, you know, play a song from Into the Wild or something in between comedians, which is what people usually do. And instead one day he said, maybe I could write a song using Gary Shandling's journal entries as the lyrics. And he said, can you send me a bunch of pages of what you think would be relevant journal pages, mainly about his spirituality and, and his journey. And he wrote this incredible song. And then 20 minutes before he's going to go out and do it, he says to me, okay, I'll sing this part. You sing that part. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? I don't, <laughs> I'm not even close to someone who sings. And he's like, I'm not doing it alone. And then I had to go out there. I think it should be online if anybody wants to hear it. The name of the song is Dear Mind. And it's like Gary talking to his mind. Uh, it's a beautiful song. It really is incredible. And one of the highlights of my life doing it with him. But man, does my voice crack when I try to hit a note. <laughs> I can't wait to look up Dear Mind. Um, what is one of the great attributes of you is not only are you an excellent creator of comedy, of excellent work, but you love getting back. You love talking to students, talking to people, talking to people and inspiring them. And I think it's maybe because my guess is that people did that for you. When you were young, you interviewed Seinfeld at 15 years of age. You uh, know about George Carlin famously giving Shanley positive feedback after stand upset. I love the story you included when you're talking to Lin-Manuel Miranda. You're the MC and Seinfeld's coming up and you throw in a couple of jokes. The MC throws a couple of jokes and Jerry goes up there and goes, hey, that was funny. And you go, I lived two years on that. Like Seinfeld doesn't throw <laughs> that stuff around there. That was funny from Seinfeld goes two years. So you know how much a word goes, right? Oh, abso- absolutely. I mean, I think there's a natural instinct to want to help other people and be a mentor because, you know, when I was a young comedian, I was at the Dallas Improv and doing stand-up. It was the first, first days of the first Gulf War. And I get a call, Gary Shanling needs jokes for the Grammys. And I sat up all night, wrote a hundred jokes and then talked to Gary the next day. And, and he gave me a big break and he said, come with me to the show and help me host the show. And uh, I think that the advice I got from people like comedian, Kevin Rooney gave me so much advice as a young writer. And, and, and Gary, when he hired me at the Larry Sanders show, he said, you're going to learn so much. He didn't say I was going to help him. He said, (laughs) you're going to learn so much. And I, I think that, my instinct was always, oh, that's what you're supposed to do, you know, once you establish yourself is lift other people up. Judd, what's the film that changed the most over the course of making it? You started it here and at the end of it, you're like, I like what's what this is, but it's a little different than we imagined. Well, the, the movie that changed the most was, was Anchorman because we tested it and it didn't test well. And there was a whole story about a Patty Hearst type 
terrorist group and it just didn't work well enough and then adam mckay and will wrote the 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 storyline about christina applegate getting stuck in the bear pit at the san diego zoo and we reshot like 20 percent of the movie like we didn't reshoot like a subplot we reshot the a plot and then that worked really well but there certainly was a moment where we were like this is funny but i don't think this is functioning if you had to pick one scene to put in front of someone to say this is judd apatow what scene from any of your work that's a good question i think i'm very proud of some of the the big emotional scenes in some of the movies. I love the scene in Knocked Up where Leslie finds Paul and he's at a baseball. Oh, uh, Deki Matsui. Yeah, uh, <laughs> like his his group of, uh, what is that called? Uh, um, Fantasy League. Fantasy League Baseball. Yeah. And then yeah. he's sneaking out and lying and hanging out with his friends. And she re- she thinks he's cheating, but really he just wants buddy time. And, and Seth then- like whispering in the house, like on his <laughs> side. <laughs> like- <laughs> and, and there's a moment where like she went through his stuff and saw that he went to Spider-Man without her and then she's like crying she's like i like spider-man and he says well then let's go to spider-man and she's like i shouldn't have to ask you to ask me to spider-man and it's a really funny sequence and then gets really heartbreaking (laughs) and i think it also reveals a lot about marriage and the insecurities that we have even deep into a marriage and how challenging it can be to make it work over the long haul and how people lose touch with each other and i love scenes like that that start out really funny and then land in something very deep and emotional a couple more to close here we'll let you go judge so my brother-in-law's wife is from sayasa i live in bergen county it is a Mm -hmm. hellacious drive every thanksgiving it's two hours god this is miserable i said the only good thing about sayasa is judd apatow is from here so please tell me the next time i go to the 30 somerset place is there anything of you is there a park judd apatow park where you pee behind a tree is there somewhere where you played little league what is there in sayasa that signifies you were there that's a, that's a, the best question I've ever been asked. Uh, well, you know, at the corner of Jericho Turnpike, there's a Walt Whitman Elementary School. There's a big rock there I used to sit on a lot as a kid, but no one wanted to play with me. And uh, my parents owned a restaurant at the Woodbury Commons called Raisins Restaurant. It's not there anymore, but it was in the corner. I'm sure there's a different restaurant there now. And imagine me riding my bike up and down Jericho Turnpike. And back then, we never thought it was dangerous. Like, we're little kids riding our bikes down, like, a major, like, thoroughfare. And we would do it all day, every day. And nothing ever happened. We were all always fine. But, you know, there were no phones. There were no computers. We were just wandering. You know, school had ended three. We'd show up back at home at six. And in those three, four hours, our parents did not know what the hell happened. (laughs) The blissful days that there were. One more burning question you have to answer for me. So I once tweeted about the roast and how much I love not just the best of Larry Sanders show. And Gary Shandling wrote back it, but thanks, A, exclamation point. I retweeted it. I liked it. I wish I could retweet a hundred times. Can you confirm Gary actually did respond to his own tweets? Please tell me that wasn't like some social media person doing that for him. No, Gary did not have social media. <laughs> he, 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 that's just Gary, you know, on uh, on Twitter. And Gary was really funny yeah. on, on Twitter. You know, we, we did the you know, the Gary Shandling book and he had some really funny ones, especially at the, at the end of his life. And I wish I had it right in, in front of me. Let me look around. Do I have it, Take it near, near me? I thought um, when, when Gary uh, passed, 
I put together a memorial for him and I put together this book, which was a precursor to the book I put out called It's Gary Shandling's Book. Right. And on one page, I just put all the tweets that I thought were funny. Uh, <laughs> and he says, uh, I'm starting to look like Gary Shandling. I didn't see that coming. <laughs> And then he wrote, I'm starting to envy those who live under a dictatorship and don't have to vote. And then it says, hashtag democratic debates. Uh, and he wrote, I hobbled today for the very first time. It was for just a very hair split second, but it was a hobble. I'm sure of it. <laughs> and then he said, I am the best defensive back in the NFL. That's why I pat so many guys on the ass. <laughs> I guess his tweet to you, thanks, A, didn't make the book. No, that didn't make the book. That's okay. That will always live on in my heart. I'll put that in my book. Uh, George Carlin's American Dream. It's on HBO, May 20th and May 21st. It's a two-part doc. It is absolutely outstanding. And the book is called Sicker in the Head, More Conversations About Life and Comedy from Judd Apatow. And you can catch The Bubble on Netflix, which Chris and I both really enjoyed. Chris, quickly tell Judd what was your favorite joke from the movie. In fact, the guy's a glove which you can use in any part of the world. <laughs> yeah, we're like a sex, like, oh my God. That I was like, this needs to be invented. It's the virtual reality glove. Do you, you ever not want to put good ideas like that in a movie? Cause you're like, shit, I can make some money off this. Well, you know, someone's going to invent that where you can take the glove and put it on you or in you. And in another city, they have a glove <laughs> and they can manipulate your glove. I mean, come on, that's, uh, that's not just comedy. That's important technology. Uh, an important technology and an important person. Don't have to tell. Can't thank you enough, man. I love your work. And I really appreciate your great suit and your time today. Thank you so much. Thanks, Judd. All right, take care, guys. That was fun. Thanks, man. All right. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. All right. So uh, as Chris mentioned there, thanks again to John Apatow. I thought he was phenomenal. And proof that he liked it, because as you heard in my question there when I said to him, you know, Seinfeld, when Apatow introduced me, he said that was funny. At the end, Judd said to us, Thanks, guys. That was fun. So I think that, yeah. thanks, guys, that was fun. That's his way of saying he enjoyed his time yeah. with us. Most of the time, you'll just get a thanks, guys. Yeah. Like, he actually, he didn't need to say that was fun. I don't feel like he says it for all his interviews. 
I don't think so either. As Chris said, the, the behind the scenes is unbelievable. So, you know, we've been reeling him in here. Um, Eliza, Eliza, not your pronunciation. She had said, hey, we can do this time. It was Thursday at noon Pacific. And I wrote back right away, yep, no problem. It's late at night. It's like 11.15 Eastern. I'm like, yeah, no problem. And then I think maybe an hour later, or maybe the next day, I was kind of like, I immediately text Chris, you can do this. He's like, yep, good to go. The next day, I was like, hmm. So I'm here in Boston. I'm calling the Angels Red Sox at Fenway Park. I'm going to check out around noon. I'm going to be driving. It's a four-hour drive. I'm like, okay, like I'm not going to be able to get home in time. And my whole thing was just the technical aspect. I'm like, the audio is not going to be as good. Plus the backdrop. I got, you know, I'm going to be network. I got Cinephile in the background. I'm going to be in my car. Like, it's going to look brutal. So I just said, anyway, we can push it a couple more hours. And she wrote back, not firmly, not meanly, just, this is the best time that works for John. I go, no problem at all. That's what we're doing. All good. So I pull over right around 255 Eastern in Wethersfield, Connecticut. I'm ready to go. I hop on Chris. He's like, yep, good. John comes on. First comment he makes is, "Wow, oh, nice sophisticated backdrop you have. I said, I'm really sorry. I'm in my car. I was calling the Red Sox game, blah, blah, blah. This is going to be great. He said, well, the audio sounds good, so let's do this. I'm like, all right, let's do it. Interview's going, and I'm perspiring. And it's not that I'm talking to the Judd Apatow. It's that I'm in a really warm car. and it's He didn't have his car on. No, I didn't want the car because I thought it would mess with the audio. So car is turned off. But I clearly, rookie move, should have parked in the shade. I'm just You're just the fitzing the whole time. I'm looking at you. Yeah. I'm like, wow, is he nervous? I know this is a big interview for us, but you're wiping the forehead. And I'm like, wow. And then, like, I realized midway through, oh, his car's off. And once you, once you saw that wipe of the brow, you're like, oh, man. And I'm like, all right, we're getting through it. And then, sure enough, I look at my phone. Boom. It gives you that thermometer temperature too hot. Your phone, phone overheats. So all of a sudden, we're doing an interview. Adnan drops off completely in the middle of a question. So now it's just me and Judd Apatow sitting in a Zoom. Awkward, that 20 seconds of, don't worry, he'll be right back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm sure he just had a thing. He'll be right back. And then a minute goes by, and I'm like, No, wasn't right, a minute, come on. <laughs> well, no, like, like 30 seconds maybe goes. It felt like a minute. 30 yeah. seconds goes by, and I'm like, you know what? It's time for me to grab the bull by the horns. Nice. So I'm like, Judd, until he gets back, I'll just ask you a couple questions. We don't want to waste your time. As soon as I ask a question, Adnan, of course, pops right back in. But there was a, about 30 seconds of panic from me oh. of like, holy shit, now I have to interview Judd Apatow. But I think I did all right. I asked a good question. So I feel good about it. No, listen, you were great because even ahead of time, you had emailed me. You had like 10 questions. You go, hey, in case you're – because we worried about Wi-Fi. You go, in case your Wi-Fi drops out, yeah. these are the questions I'm going to ask. And you had sent me something about Carlin. I go, I got the Carlin stuff. You know, I know, listen, if I'm doing the interview, I need to ask a Carlin question. I've not, I've not seen the Carlin documentary. So I'm going to have to ask him something Carlin related. I'm like, okay, great. What did you learn about George Carlin? Something generic. All right, got it. So I, I, so I prepped for stuff. you falling off with your internet and it happened and I was still panicked, even though I had prepped. I had prepped for this moment and I still, I feel like I did okay. It wasn't even the question that was good. The key was keeping him calm. Because yes. if he had just said, that guy's gone, I'm like, okay, I'm going to get going, buddy. Because like, at that point, I had asked all the Shandling stuff. I had asked all the Carlin stuff. So a part of me, as panic-stricken as I was, I go, well, if that's it, that's it. Like, you got at least 15 to 20 minutes. It was pretty good, and he liked you. Like, I mean, that's yeah. life. So I was standing in the shade outside, waiting, waiting for it to pop back on, and boom, he was there. And the fact he was still there, I'm like, all right, we're good. Let's just keep, keep popping yeah. up. So the key is you kept in comedy. I'm sure he'll be right back. Wait five seconds. He'll be, he'll be right back. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh, I think, is this him? I even hit him with that at one point. When you weren't rejoining, I go, oh, I think this is him here. Yeah, you pulled that. That's unbelievable. You pulled that crap up. And then I'm like, you know what? Oh, that's not him. You know what? Let me just, or you know what? I'll interview you for five minutes. Okay. One of the suggested questions you had sent me, which I was like, oh, we'll definitely do that. Because honestly, this rarely happens. You do the interview and you go, I actually got everything in. Like, I mean, it wasn't really, if he had said, I have another 10 minutes, I'd be like, okay, I'll take it. But I, but I really had nothing else to ask yeah. him that was critical. I had already prepped in the hotel. I knew every question I was going to ask him. The only thing you had sent me, which I said, that is a good question to ask him, which I'll now tell, is in the book he tells a story. Because you said there's a story about Steve Martin when he refused John an autograph. Yes. So the story is... 
for those who haven't seen it, you can look it up yourself if you want. But uh, basically, Judd Apatow as a kid asked for an autograph. Steve Martin refused him. I believe he went to his door. Like, I don't know how somebody found out where Steve Martin lives. Steve Martin's like, what the hell are you coming to my house for? No. So years later, there's a picture of them, and he put it in the book. And Steve Martin's autograph says, I'm so sorry. I did not realize you were the Judd Apatow. <laughs> So uh, he didn't end up getting his autograph many years later. But Judd was fantastic, man. I, I, like I said, I, I hope everyone enjoyed the interview as much as me and Chris enjoyed doing it. Um, he's obviously a great guy. Make sure you check out this Carlin documentary. No joke. It's phenomenal. American Dream. Once again, May 20th. And, um, yeah, it's awesome. And also the Bible, the bubble we've got. The bubble, not the Bible. The bubble we have spoken about as well. And, um, and also the book, which is very, very good as well. All right, now it's time to some actual reviews. Uh, the Northman, which is now a new movie in theaters. And listen, there was a lot of hype around this film. From visionary director Robert Eggers comes The Northman, an action-filled epic that follows a young Viking prince on his quest to avenge his father's murder. Flashy trailer, lots of big stars I mentioned off the top. Really excited to go see it. Hadn't seen a movie with my wife in the theater since West Side Story. So first one in four months. She's big into Game of Thrones, so I go, you're going to like this kind of stuff. This will be your, your view. So we go there. i got to be honest with you, man. I, I was a little disappointed. I, I mean, I'm expecting one of the best pictures of the year. Again, this is a director who made The Witch, which is a horror film made a film called the lighthouse with willem dafoe and robert pattinson black and white film odd strange the most famous part of that movie is robert pattinson at one point says if i had a steak i would fuck it i mean it's like a meme you can look it up it's unbelievable I'm like that's why i knew pattinson this guy can play batman <laughs> because that steak line i'm like okay i believe that this guy can actually be a really good batman he can play bruce wayne um here's the story it's hamlet but it's set amongst Vikings. So the first question you, Chris Cody, are you a Viking guy? If I said to you, hey, you want to go check out this movie about Vikings, are you yay or are you nay? Uh, big nay. Big nay, yes. That's the yeah. thing. You're going to be really into Vikings. This is 10th century. Um, you know, no indoor plumbing. Just They're all eating the utensils. And nasty people. It's an odd language. Some of it's subtitles. Some of it's in English. They do this crazy Viking rain dance at one point. Skarsgård's got like a bear head on top of him. Just bizarre stuff. It is, as you would expect, very bloody. One of the more violent films I've seen in a while. I counted at least six beheadings. And listen, in today's world, it looks even more and more visceral and more um, realistic than in the years past. You might have seen a beheading. Oh, it's kind of fake. Like, oh, actually, looks like they cut the guy's head off. But it's Hamlet set amongst the Vikings. So... The main character, Alexander Skarsgård, as a kid, plays Amleth. His father's Willem Dafoe. This isn't a spoiler, I don't think, because it's in the trailer. And it's literally in the first five minutes of the movie. Ethan Hawke comes home. He's the king. He gets killed. Boom, it's his uh, brother that does it. So now it's a revenge tour, right? Nicole Kidman is the mom. And Skarsgård's going to go find his uncle and slay him for the fact that he murdered his father. Would have liked a lot more of Ethan Hawke. He's in it five minutes. Would have liked a lot more of Willem Dafoe. He's in it for like five minutes. But, I, I mean, listen... I just thought the first half was a real slog. I mean, just seeing him on the boat, getting to all this stuff, I mean, I guess that's the character development, but I found the second half of the film much better than the first half. That's where you get more of this action-filled epic, some fantastic visceral action scenes. It's very grimy. You know, it's shot with a lot of handheld camera, and it really is, um, it makes you feel the filth, which is a hell of a compliment to say. Uh, but ultimately, as a film, I mean, it's, it's two hours, 15 minutes with trailers, again, two and a half hours in the theater. And the real disappointment here is the film has been a bomb as far as the box office. This movie cost between 70 and 90 million. So the only movies that get budgets like that are now part of the MCU universe, right? It's got to be a superhero movie. To have a movie like this with a young, hotshot director who's done two movies, which were really well received by critics and on the independent film circuit, he basically went to the studio and goes, hey, I got this Viking idea. Great. We'll give you a shit ton of money. I'll get some big movie stars. And the movie flops. 
it's really upsetting actually just as a movie fan because you go, oh, the next time there's going to be this young, impressionable director, they're going to uh, remember the North Band? That didn't, didn't, we're not, we're not falling for that thing. We're not, no, no, no Vikings. We're not giving you $70 million. We'll get you $2 million. You do your thing. We'll go from there. So as a movie fan, it's disappointing to see the film did not do well. But Eggers is very idiosyncratic. I think if you like his films, The Witch and the Lighthouse, you'll like this film. But if you're like Chris Cody, you're not really pro-Vikings, I couldn't imagine you sitting through The North Man. No. I was thinking about you have ever since you mentioned your wife, if you're a 10 in terms of interest in movies, what's your wife? She's definitely high up there. I mean, because listen, we love The Godfather. I mean, we watched that show. Has together, she been which... since before you knew her? Or like, have you con have you converted her into a movie person because of how into them you are? No, no, even when I met her, she was into movies. Now, listen, she's not at my rabid level. You're right. If I'm a 10, she's probably a five or a six. Yeah. Which is to say she likes movies. She likes a movie obsessive. night. Like if you if you pitch a movie night as a date night, she's always for it. Exactly. That's an excellent okay. way of putting it. If I pitch a movie night, she's always for it. She's never like, oh God, another movie? She's like, no, let's go see a movie. I'm into it. Okay. But you're right. She's not obsessive like me. She's not, you know, manic like That's I am. That's good. You, you can't have two Adnans in a relationship no, with me. Like, yeah, it'd yeah, be yeah. too it would be too much interest in movies, honestly. No question. But you wouldn't <laughs> want to have a ten and a one. Like when people say opposites attract, I'm like, no, if every single time she was fighting, I'm like, God, another Right. Movie? If she hated movies, that sure. wouldn't work. Yeah, it'd be a disaster. That's like right. Lauren Shahadi. I work with her MLB network, and she's like, oh, I hate movies. I go, who hates movies? And she's like, oh, I never watch movies. I go, oh, we, we could never That's like really saying I hate music. I'm not a big music person. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, I hate certain types of music, but like, if you have just music on, I'm like, oh, God, again with the music? <laughs> <laughs> we'll do it very quickly in a movie that I didn't really care for. It's called School Days. A not-so-popular young man wants to pledge to a popular fraternity at his historically black college. It's written and directed by Spike Lee. Since Spike Lee's one of my favorite filmmakers, Ben Lyon's favorite filmmaker, I said, I finally got to watch this movie. I happened to see it was on cable. Um, you know, I probably could have waited another 30 years to watch it. It wasn't <laughs> particularly great. Again, this is when Spike was, it was a second film after She's Gotta Have It, which was a low-budget black-and-white movie about a woman who clearly has got to have it. Mars Blackman was a character he played. You know, him and Michael Jordan, those famous commercials. Please, baby, baby, please, please, baby, baby, please, please, please. But School Days is his look at black colleges. So I appreciate the fact, again, I guess you got to think of this film at its time, 1988. You weren't seeing films about historically black colleges. You know, Spike went to Morehouse and what that whole vibe was like. Cool to see Lawrence Fishburne long before he was now in, uh, you know, so many other works uh, of art. You saw him here in an early Spike Lee movie. He plays Dap Dunlap, who's like this socially conscious young black man. He's like 21, but looks like he's 35. But I think that's just Lawrence Fishburne. I think he's always <laughs> yeah. looked a lot older than you. Like, you know, he's only 60. Yeah, that's shocking. I, I, I thought Lawrence Fishburne We was looked a it lot up older. because he's playing Doc Rivers in the new where uh, Ed O'Neill's going to play Donald Sterling. I yeah, saw yeah, that yeah. this week. Right. And so everyone was like, wow, Doc, he seems too old to play Doc Rivers. They're the same age. Doc Rivers, Lauren, wow. Lawrence Fishburne, both 60. Doc Rivers looks 51 years old, and Lawrence Fishburne looks 75. Right. It's <laughs> not even close. It's at least a 25 year swing on those guys. <laughs> I killed Lawrence Fishburne, 60. Wow. He has been acting since Apocalypse Now. I think he was like 16 years old, and that was 1979. So, yeah, do the math. It all works out. Uh, Giancarlo Esposito, who's so great as bugging out and do the right thing, he plays another character named Big Brother Almighty. Now, he's running this fraternity. Now, Chris, where did you go to college? FAU. So, FAU. Did you guys have, uh, you know, fraternities, sororities, uh, all that kind of stuff? I think, I think that they were around, but I don't think we even had houses they lived in. Like, you could join stuff, but you didn't even have a house, I believe. Okay. I like it. That, that's pretty, that's kind of like how it was at Ryerson. It wasn't a big deal like where I went to college, right. whatever. Here, though, it's a big deal. You want to get the fraternity. So Spike Lee's character wants to get the fraternity. He's willing to do anything that they tell him to do. At one point, one of the things which they torture these guys, and like it's everything, right? They're insulting him, verbally abusing him. At one point, they make them eat dog food. Now, I'm sure it's not actual dog food, obviously. But and again, it was pretty, Spike did not have much money at this time. Maybe it was real dog food. But the most disgusting thing they make them do is they go to a toilet seat, and they make them, they're blindfolded, put their hand on the toilet seat, and squeeze, and it's a banana. 
Mm. But it's meant to be that's a fresh turd. And mm. I'm like, would you really get into fraternity? You would like squeeze shit. Like, really? Is that where we're at? Like, I, I kind of got hazed as a as a, a trying to make the varsity baseball team. We had like a, a a night where we went over one player's house, and they did this thing where like they brought us in a room blindfolded and tried to make it seem like we were like gonna like touch something we weren't. So then like, it was all like fun and games. But I, yeah. that was the closest I've ever come to that type of thing. Yeah, I remember like, freaking out though as a sophomore in high school. I remember like. The panic of like I don't know what they're gonna do to me tonight. Mom, I'm like talking to my mom. I'm like, mom, do I do I like I'm not comfortable with this. She's like, if you want to be part of the team, they're not gonna do anything. Like my mom was trying to talk to me. I just remember the panic. And looking back on it, it was just stupid kids. Like I don't know why I was, I was stressed it so much. It was so funny looking back. No, on but it. I'm with you. I hate that kind of. I hate hazing, bullying. Like oh, it's part of the team. Like nah, it's awful. I remember right. at the score one of my first jobs, uh, these two guys walked in, Derek Snyder, and I can't remember who else it was. It wasn't Shane Brown. It might have been Andrew Orr, I think. They walked in. I was sitting there, and they tried to get duct tape and duct to the chair. And I swear to God, Cody, I came up swinging. Like, I'm, I will I will assault yeah. somebody. Like, this isn't part of a fun game. Oh, I didn't stuck like, to duct tape for the next four hours. Yeah. Like, fuck fuck this, you guys. I'll yeah. fucking throw it. I'm throwing haymakers. Like, holy shit. This guy's not going to take a joke. I'm like, no way. I was like, no. Like, yeah. I strengthened a thousand men. Like, you okay, busted it out like Hulk. Joke. Like, you busted the tape. Oh, <laughs> I went, I went berserk on those guys. They were not getting that duct tape on me, baby. I remember in high school, high school basketball, my poor friend Nate Sager was a wonderful guy. He's just one of those guys. Everyone always picks on him, right? Everyone knows who that guy is. Yeah. And one time we had to, my buddy Gavin, he had like a rabbit. So like he had a bunch of like, you know, rabbit shit, whatever, and like fed it to him like it was cocoa pops. Like it's just disgusting. Oh, God. And I remember he was like, oh, this is so good. I'm like, yeah. Oh, it's just horrible. I mean, if he's going to sit there and say, wow, this, this cereal is really good today. I mean, that's just... I'm not, I don't like the I don't like that prank, but yeah. once it happened, him loving the cereal is hilarious. Uh, yeah, that, that prank. I'm like, bro, this is disgusting. This is pretty good. Not bad. It's, Anyways, it's um, shit. <laughs> movie wasn't very good. I don't think Spike had much of a budget back then, but it did make me think about hazing and how that sucks. And it happens at historically black colleges and apparently all colleges in general. Unless you're a real Spike Lee completist, I would see no reason to watch School Days. I'm going to give it one and a half Maple Leafs. I'm going to give the North Man two and a half Maple Leafs. That sounds generous. Maybe I, should, I should just give it two. I mean, again, visually very <laughs> stunning, but I, I couldn't imagine if you sit me right now, you want to go watch The Northman? I'm like, I'm not going to sit through two hours and 50 You'd minutes. pay me not to watch it again. Yeah, like the, I could just pay. I'm putting a picture. I'm like, if Cody was watching this, he'd be so pissed right now. Like, I can't <laughs> this is part of my job? Like, no way. Uh, school Days. Rita Kempley, Washington Post. Nails it. School Days with its pompous patchwork plot is an arrogant, humorless, sexist mess. And this one from Destin Thompson, Washington Post. Spike Lee had something in mind while he shot School Days. His follow-up to the cult that she's going to have it. Unfortunately, it's still lodged behind its cranium. Oh, man. And one more to Eric Henderson of Slant Magazine. The film's central argument is that black matriculation is undercut by internal divisions. Now, they're positive or negative. Basically, it's right. that There's this whole faction between light-skinned black people, dark-skinned black people. Unless they get on the same page, they can't all things work out. The one thing I really liked with the movie was at the end, Lawrence Fishman's last line is, wake up! And, of course, do the right thing. Spike Lee's next film, which is a masterpiece, starts with Samuel L. Jackson saying, wake up. So, you know, again, unless you're a Spike Lee completist, you're not crazy about that. Are you a completist on somebody if it came out in 1988 and you didn't see it till 2022? That might be actually the title of this episode. <laughs> Can you call yourself a completist if you didn't watch the film for 35 years? Like, you clearly weren't. You you would have been like you would have got around to it at this point. You said it the first time. I'm like I'm gonna let that slide. If he says it again, no. I'm asking it. Clearly not a completist. I had to wait till 2022. I have not had time in, in 34 years to watch the movie. <laughs> Adnan Brook, non-spikely completist. Uh, one more story before we say goodbye. So I'm in Boston. 
Drove up Tuesday, watched the Bees game. Excuse Red Sox game. Then I watched some hockey. Next day, um, whatever, got puttering around a little bit. I think I was actually doing prep for the Judd Apto interview. I don't think I was even prepping for the game. Like, ah, the game will call. And by the way, for all you Lebetard fans, I did drop in a welcome to Tangier. Oh, it was great. On Anthony Rendon home run. I'm glad you guys mentioned it on the show. Yes. I texted Dan immediately. He was like, yeah, some 70-year-old right now is just howling at the moon, yeah. not understanding this reference. I'm like, whatever. <laughs> it's for the Levitard guys. They'll like it. Cody That's retweeted great. immediately. I'm like, yep, yeah, we got it. Um, so I'm really hungry, and it's a four-floor hotel. It's very shishi. It's in Kenmore Square, very, you know, Boston elitist. Yeah, wicked piss, a wicked yad. So I go down the stairs, two floors, and then I walk out, and I go, and the woman kind of stares at me like I look like I'm breaking in somewhere because it's the kitchen area. And I go, I'm sorry, where's the restaurant? And she says, no English, Spanish. I'm like, okay. She gets me out. She goes, yes. And I go, um, you know, typical friendly Boston. What? What do you want? I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm just looking for the restaurant. She's like, there was no restaurant. And she starts walking. I just, I'm like, okay, I'll walk. She goes, no, this way. I'm like, okay. I thought you just said there was no restaurant. Like, why, are you, why are you following me? I'm like, why am I following you? So I follow her around. We go past an area where there's clearly like a conference room and there's a bunch of food set up. And she kind of walks past me and points to the elevator. She goes, you have to take the elevator down. Go find food elsewhere. I'm like, okay, got it. So she walks away. I look at the conference room. I look at the elevator. I look back at the conference room. Oh, I wow. food there, And I go, I got to pull this one off. So I just <laughs> casually put my head down. And the good thing is, again, because when you're there calling a game, I'm wearing a dress. I'm wearing a full suit. I look like I fit. Wait, is there, is there people where this food is? Yeah, there's maybe. The food is mainly no one really around it. At okay. this point, it's already been eaten, I think. So it's mainly people exiting the one conference room. They're going to another conference room. But the food is there. But nobody's actually in line, I think, is what you're asking. No, I love the this. So I just grab a plate, look it up, one piece of prime rib, boom, one piece of chicken, great, a little bit of And my whole thing is keep the head down. So you look up, someone goes, hey, who are you here with? I'm like, oh, Bruce, who's Bruce? Oh, whatever. So just head down, just go quick. But not, Bruce. don't rush it. Don't rush it. Just one prime rib, yeah, okay, chicken, yeah, head down, okay, okay dessert, great, okay, Sprite, good. Kind of give one look up, because you don't look at you're running away from people. It's kind of one look up, nod, walked away. Went to my room, free food. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That is and I kept so thinking, good. What if somebody had stopped me? Because excuse me, who are you here with? What would I have said? You just gotta play dumb. Like, oh, I'm with MLB Network. They said that there's food down here. I thought I was told there's food somewhere. Where's the MLB Network food? <laughs> that was my exact thought. Go, if someone stops you, do you pretend you're part of the group? So I'm here with the group and point to them. Go, what group? Then you're busted. So I would have done that. I would have said MLB Network. Like what? What is yeah. that? Do? I'm like, I mean, I'm with Major League Baseball. I swear, like, they I'm... said go downstairs and there's food set up. I, yeah. I, am I in the wrong place? What's this for? <laughs> Well, I'm already here. There seems to be yeah. a lot of it. Here, take surplus. the food back. You start to like hand them the plate, and they're like, "No, I'm okay. You can keep it." But uh, I'm proud of you. I knew you would be. I was like, "I'm <laughs> gonna get a free meal. I'm gonna tell that story for a national audience here on the file." It was good stuff. Wait, before we get out of here, did did I see on social? Did you go to Medieval Times? Yes, thank you. We should we should also say that Happy Mother's Day. How crazy is my wife? I said, "What do you want to do for Mother's Day?" Because you know she likes IHOP. Red Lobster. She goes, you know, let's do Medieval Times. I'm like, wow, I feel like we're in 1997. I didn't, I didn't realize that's still Cable existed. guy. Cable, exactly. That's how I can think it afterwards. I'm like, where? what's Jim Carrey movies? I'm like, it has to be Cable Guy. Good stuff out of Cody for also nailing that. Um, I thought it was just in Orlando. This this Medieval Times is everywhere? So one of my son Shaz's friends, David, his mom, Erica, was like, hey, you guys should go to Medieval Times. The kids will love it. I had the same reaction as you. I'm like, that's still around? Like, I, I, I definitely remember Cable Guy, and that was mid-90s. And so, yeah, we sure look it up. Lindhurst, New Jersey, 25 minutes from our house. My wife goes, what, what a great mom, by the way. She's like, this will be fun for the kids. I'm like, yeah, but it's your day. No, yeah, Mother's Day. I'm like, that's a, I'm like, this isn't exactly a she Mother's Day. She just wants to do something with the fam. Yeah, that's exactly. nice. It's a fam thing. Pretty, pretty packed house. We get there 4.15 for the 4.30 show. And, like, again, the boys are 13, 10, 5, and 3. So, predictably, my 13-year-old is like, oh, this is br- like, what, what are we doing here? But, but 
loved the last 30 minutes when the fighting happened. Like, once it actually got to jousting and, like, knives and, like, uh, you know, the swords are being... That was cool. But the oh, first so you only get a little bit of that? You only no, get a little first, bit of The first hour and a half, it's just people riding horses. Like, oh, when yeah. we're the red and white team, okay, the horses come out. It's literally just horses being paraded. Ten I and five like probably liked it. Yeah. yeah. Ten and five, yeah, yeah, absolutely. My son, Adin, loved it, and Shad's all in on it. Three-year-old, no. He's just kind of like, what is this going on? He just, kinda, <laughs> he just wanted to crawl over the place and to, like, you know, corral. The best thing is everyone really enjoyed this is not using utensils. Like, that part of it was awesome. Like, no utensils. You have to eat the chicken with your hands. Excellent mm. chicken. Tomato soup is okay. Garlic bread wasn't bad. They have, um, do they at least have spoons for the soup? <laughs> no. Soup, you got to eat it, like, with the ladle. You're literally just ladling tomato bisque, which three and five year old, no shot. I'm like, no, the other was my guy. Four kids, dude. How do you do that? Well, that's the thing. Anytime we can leave the house, it's always an adventure. Like, we're at my home. God. In room, you're when you're ever in a public area, I go, oh my God, I'm just constantly, I'm just doing this. It's just constantly moving around. I have one time. kid, and my head is constantly spinning. <laughs> like, I, I don't know how you do two, let alone three. Holy God, four. Like, yeah. Jesus. And that's true. It's funny. Whenever I meet people and I say, how many kids do you have? To your point, if they say one, you go, oh, that's nice. You have two. Oh, that's good. Three. You go, oh, three. If they have four, they go, oh, my God, you got four kids? Like, wait, I have four kids. Like, I, I, have, I have the reaction you just had about myself. And then if you guys God are playing me, zone defense. I mean, you guys are like, you're, they're on a fast break, four on two. <laughs> like, the crazy when someone says they have five kids. I'm like, oh, my yeah. God. And like previous generations are crazy. You'll meet someone go, oh, my, my uncle's one of eight. I'm like, what the hell? How did this happen? One of eight. All right, thanks once again to Judd Apatow. Thanks to Chris Cody. Thanks to the entire crew. Thank you to everybody for listening. Go support Judd's work, George Carlin's American Dream. Of course, lots more coming up on the next episode of Cinephile, including the offer, all 10 episodes of The Making of the Godfather. It's currently on Paramount Plus, a full review. Plus, Patrick Fabian from Better Call Saul. Special guest is going to join us. All that more coming up on Cinephile. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. <laughs>